Welcome to the Beyond Writing Podcast, brought to you by Bright Little Light Press. I'm your host, Dakari Carey, and today we're going to talk about how you can write a book that's going to sell well commercially. So what do we mean by this? Well, when you write a book, a lot of new authors say, I want to write a book that I would enjoy reading. I don't care so much what other people think about it. I'm writing this book for me. If you actually want to make money off your book, you kind of have to care what other people think about it. You can write books for you and still make some effort to make sure they will appeal to your potential audience. And there are two parts to this. One is to write a story that your readers are going to want to read. And two is to look for a niche in the genre where you're going to have the most potential to make sales at the least cost to you. So the first part of this is being prepared to make tweaks or changes to your story. So you can absolutely write a story that you're going to want to read and still write a story that other readers are going to want to read too. And you may do this by writing a story that you yourself are going to enjoy if you're really familiar with a particular genre, then chances are other readers in your genre may also enjoy it. But there may be little things you can do to make it more appealing to other readers in your genre, just small changes you can make to really increase the widespread appeal. So it's good to keep in mind that if you're telling a story just for you, and you don't care whether or not it's commercially successful, you don't know if you're going to make money from it and that's okay, then by all means, don't make any changes to your story. Tell exactly the story that you want to tell. If you do want to make money selling your book, you might need to make a few changes. Even minor changes can make your story more appealing to your audience. So what I mean by that is maybe there is a minor character that you really love but just doesn't have a place in your book, and your audience sees that and thinks, oh... This book would be better without that character. Or maybe there's a specific event that occurs in your book, and the audience thinks, you know, this event feels a little contrived. It would be better if this event didn't occur at all, or if the way it occurred had happened in a different way. So there may be little things you can change like that, just small changes, like how an event starts, or how it happens, or how it ends, or eliminating a scene that just doesn't add anything to the story. Or a bigger change might be something like rewriting a main character to make him or her more appealing. You might enjoy having like a real sort of human character, maybe is not as likable as other characters, or as other stories, uh, characters in other novels rather. But one thing to keep in mind is your readers have to enjoy reading the book. Depending on the genre you're writing in, your readers may not want to read about a character that's not very likable. Chances are people encounter other people that are not likable in their regular life all the time, and they don't want to do that in their reading life. Reading is an escape for most people. So there are circumstances under which you could have an unsympathetic character in your story and make it work, but for the most part, you really want your main character to be something that people can relate to. And again, this is just an example. I don't want to get too deep into the mechanics of writing, but it's just something to keep in mind when you're thinking about the changes that you can make to your story that would make it have more widespread appeal or make it more commercially successful. Now the question is, do you feel like that is going to change who you are as an author or fundamentally change the story. There are people who feel like making changes to your story to make it more commercially successful is selling out or is sort of circumvening this idea that they have of writing stories being an art. If you're one of those people, definitely don't make the changes. Just keep it how you want it. I'm not trying to say that's not a valid thing. But if you do that without recognizing what your audience wants, you may just compromise commercial success. And if that's okay for you, 
then by all means, do it. But just do it knowingly. Do it having made the decision that I don't mind if this is not as commercially successful. I really want to tell this story my way for this reason and go with it. That's fine. If you do make changes to your story, try not to make tweaks to the story that are going to remove the soul of the story. So, for example, if a character has some rough edges, some people may say, oh, you should smooth those out. Don't necessarily do that unless it makes sense for the overall appeal of the story. These things could make a character less human. When people are too perfect or don't have real flaws and foibles, we sort of pick up on that subconsciously when we're reading, or consciously, and that makes the book less likable and less relatable to us. So when you're making changes, just try not to make changes that sort of polish all the soul out of the story. For example, if your character relies, or if your story relies on a character being a curmudgeon, let him be a curmudgeon. Just find a way to redeem him. Find a way to make that okay in the story. And preferably don't make that the main character unless that redemption is going to happen early on. Otherwise, people might not want to keep reading to the end to where the redemption happens and you can lose an audience that way. If you do make tweaks to your story, remember to go back and integrate those changes throughout your story. For example, if you add a character, um, make sure you add that character wherever it's appropriate, not just in one scene, unless it makes sense in that context. So if you decide a minor character is a great way to give your main character a foil, so you want to bring in a character who's got certain at, uh, attributes in order to emphasize different aspects of your main character, make sure you include that character throughout the story. Don't just put that person in one scene. Be like, oh, automagically this new person has shown up halfway through the book for one scene and then vanishes again. That's a great way to lose readers too. So make sure when you make changes like that to integrate it throughout the story wherever it makes sense. Maybe that character only appears in that one scene, but maybe the main character would reference him in a different conversation. Oh, my friend Samantha says, oh, I went to go hang out with Samantha, like whatever you need to do to bring that character in throughout the book. Alternately, if you're removing a character... Make sure you remove all mentions of that character throughout, not just in the one scene. So just something to think about. Just make sure that when you make these changes, you're making it to the entire manuscript, not just to the part of the story where you think you need to make those changes. So related to this, um, another point you want to do is to understand plotting and story arcs and the particular beats of your story. So this, again, speaks to the mechanics of writing, and I don't want to get too much into this, just to say that... In order to write a good story, a story that's going to be commercially successful anyway, you should understand the basics of writing. So maybe that means you need to take some writing courses with the local organization or group that offers them. Maybe that means you should take some writing courses online. Maybe you should go to a community college and take some courses. We don't need to go into like specific details here because everybody learns differently and has different abilities to access these sorts of resources. So really, just find a way that makes sense to you to learn more about the storytelling process and how your story works in, in general. And then specifically, the story arc in your story, the character arcs, the individual beats, pacing, tension, all the things that really go into making your story a good story. You need to understand the mechanics of what you're doing in order to actually do it properly. And you may find that once you understand the mechanics... Revision may come more easily to you. You might have to uh, change one scene or add something in a scene to help with the pacing or to add tension. These things are sort of going to become more apparent to you as you level up your writing skills. The reason you need to understand these mechanics 
is so that you can deliver a story that's going to live up to readers' expectations. So there are really two types of people in the world. There are people who don't read at all or read very rarely, and then the people who do read often read fairly prolifically. It depends on how much money they have to buy books and how much time they have to read. Some people may actually read while they're at work, like, for example, a toll booth operator or a security guard at an overnight shift may have chances to read at work. Other people, like uh, mothers, for example, may only get a chance to read while their baby is napping or late at night after the kids have gone to bed, but often then they may still be doing other household chores, so they may not read as often. Uh, there may be people who read during their commute, so they read for an hour uh, in the morning and then another hour in the evening, so they go through books fairly quickly. But generally speaking, the people who read are going to be fairly familiar with your genre, and they're going to have a reasonable idea of what a story should be. So if your story doesn't hit those major beats that they sort of expected after reading so many novels, it's going to cause issues with your readers. They'll be sort of unhappy if you deviate from the main shape that a story will t should take. However, you don't necessarily have to take writing courses. I don't want this to be like a hard and fast rule, if I can't take writing courses, I can't tell a good story. That's not entirely the case. A lot of great writers start out being very prolific readers. If you read a lot, if you read a wide variety of stories, and particularly if you read very deeply in your genre, you probably already have a good sense for how a story should work in your particular genre. You may not know it consciously, but you probably have a good feel subconsciously for the major beats that a story should hit, and you're probably capable of doing that without necessarily mapping out all of your plot points and really doing the technical work that goes into arcs and plotting. So I don't want you to feel discouraged if you're not able to take classes, but if you're new to writing, these classes can be a great way to help you get the basics down. And even if you are an experienced reader but you've never published a novel, going through these sorts of classes can give you a good way to validate the story you've written and get you some of that confidence that you wouldn't get in the podcast we talked about last week about the gatekeeping. If you're planning to self-publish, or even if you want to traditionally publish but you haven't sent your story out to agents yet, going through these exercises can really help you make sure your story fits the expectation for the genre and for the type of story that you've written, and that can help you with the confidence you need to self-publish or to start approaching agents and publishers. So related to this, I'm going to say uh, just briefly, avoid cliffhangers. Now, this is something we've sort of touched on in some of the other podcasts, so I want to explore it in a little more detail right now. Um, this is sort of like part of the idea of understanding plots and uh, your story beats, but in general, you should be aware that readers hate cliffhangers. There are exceptions, and you can probably think of some TV series that often end with the season on a cliffhanger. Your books aren't really like that, or at least they shouldn't be like that. Even if you're writing in a series, you probably shouldn't be ending in a cliffhanger. You want to at least wrap up the main arc of the book, but you could leave bigger questions unanswered. So that's something you can do across the series. Um, for example, the urban fantasy series that we're publishing later this year is uh, based on a detective who has sort of a relationship with some mythological creatures. And by relationship, I don't mean romantic. They just are part of his life. And the first book in this series really follows the arc of one particular case. And throughout that case, he discovers more about what these creatures are expecting from him and also what his own abilities are. And 
The second book in the series is going to explore that in a little more detail. So there are bigger questions that are left unanswered in the series, but the first book follows the complete arc of this particular case that he is solving, and also really reveals to you some of the underlying things that are going to be part of the larger arc across the whole series. The questions of what these mythological creatures want with him, where his powers originated and what they are exactly, and how he fits into the world in general. The bigger questions are revealed, but not necessarily answered in the first book, but there is a satisfying resolution to the case and sort of where we leave him with that particular question, with that particular series of questions. So that's not exactly a cliffhanger, even though you know there's more to the story. As long as the part of the arc that you're talking about in one book concludes satisfactorily, then it's not such a cliffhanger. Um, on the flip side of this, if you are writing in a series and you really want to encourage people to read the next book in your series, say you might have your character drive off a cliff, like a literal cliffhanger. What happens? Does the character die? Is the character going to undergo some crazy traumatic surgery, um, have amnesia, lose memory? You don't know. And readers can find that sort of thing really unsatisfying. If you're doing it because you want to drive readers into your next book, readers sort of see through that type of thing. And they would rather you at least resolve that in the book that you're talking about it. So maybe you would have the car drive off a cliff and then have the main character wake up in a hospital and not really reveal much about the extent of the damage, but at least leave the fact that this character is alive and the next book is going to focus on the recovery. Whatever it is, it has to make sense in the overall arc that spans the series. And this is where you really need to understand the mechanics of storytelling to know that you're ending the story on the right beat and giving characters the res or giving readers the resolution they need without necessarily not encouraging them to read the next book. So this is sort of a double-edged sword, because if you're writing in a series, you definitely do want readers to come back next time. So in that sense, it can make, in that way, it can seem to make sense to end on a cliffhanger. Like you might think, oh, well, I really want people to come back. And if I leave this on a cliffhanger, they're going to have to know how this character survives or like what happens to this character. The problem with that is that if readers feel unsatisfied or betrayed by your ending, they won't want to come back and they will leave you negative feedback on Amazon. So a lot of green writers who aren't particularly experienced in understanding readers' expectations might think they it's a great idea to end on a cliffhanger. And then if you find those books on Amazon and you see the negative reviews and the low sell-through to the next book in the series, people find out maybe that's not such a great idea. So I want to save you that trouble and tell you right now, don't end on a cliffhanger. <laughs> there are exceptions. I, I don't mean to say that no books that end on a cliffhanger will possibly be commercially successful, but in general, it's the rule that readers don't like cliffhangers, and until you're a more experienced author, you probably shouldn't play around with trying to circumvent that rule. Just go with it. Just don't end on a cliffhanger. Once you've got 10 or 15 books under your belt and you have a good idea of what your readers want and your readers are more devoted to you and know that what they can expect from you as a writer, then you can start playing with bending those rules. But in general, you shouldn't try breaking literary rules right away unless you absolutely know what you're doing and most people don't. Uh, one thing you can do to find a different way to hook your readers is to leave bigger questions unanswered again, like if you're writing in a series, you can have these bigger questions that you reveal to your readers so they know there's more going on, but they don't necessarily need the answer to feel like the first book had a satisfying ending. 
Another thing you can do is offer a preview of the next book at the end of the, the book that you've published to get them excited about that. So um, that's something we definitely do here at Bright Little Light Press. We always make sure that our authors have at least a scene or some sort of preview from the next book ready when we publish their books. So readers can read that next scene, get an idea of what the book is going to be about, and really be excited about diving into that when that book is available to them. Another thing you need to do to write a book that will be commercially successful is to know your genre. Some people might think this is a no-brainer, while others think, oh, it doesn't matter if I can write a good story, I can write a good story in any genre. That's not exactly true. You're probably not a great idea for you to write a book in a genre you've never read before just because you think that genre might be more commercially successful, or if it's popular right now. So there's a couple reasons for not just jumping into a popular genre that you think you can write a story in. One, if you're publishing traditionally, as we've talked about on some of the older podcasts, it takes a long time to get all the way through the publishing process. We're talking, in most cases, 18 to 24 months, so it could be two years from now before your book goes out to readers if you publish traditionally. So whatever is popular right now probably won't be popular in two years. Uh, For example, a movie trend right now is superhero movies. Superhero movies are getting to be huge in movies right now. That may not translate to a book that you write right now, because if you write a book right now that's based on some superhero story, it's possible that two years from now, the big trend is going to be um, paranormal, like uh, vampires and shapeshifters. That's actually a trend from a couple years ago, like particularly in 2011 to 2013, it did really well. There are still a lot of people publishing in that area right now, but the demand for that in readers has gone down. So if you're trying to write to a popular trend, That's probably not a great uh, approach. And again, it's more relevant if you're publishing traditionally, so it's going to take you a long time to get that book out. If you're self-publishing in the short term, and you're trying to capitalize on a popular genre or story type, you might be able to meet that in terms of time frame. Like if you are a, a quick writer, you might be able to get a book out in, say, three months through writing and editing and through the um, advanced reader process. Although I would argue that three months probably isn't long enough to prepare a good launch strategy, but that's a separate question. But just because you can meet that in terms of time frame, that doesn't necessarily mean you're going to be able to meet it in terms of reader expectation. So readers of specific genres are going to have specific expectations of how those genres are going to play out. And you need to be familiar enough with that genre to meet those reader expectations. And that's all there is to it. If your book really deviates from other books in the genre, for the most part, that's going to be unpopular for readers. They're going to feel less satisfied or even betrayed. One great example of this is in romance novels, it is the reader expectation that there will be a happy ending at the end of a romance novel. Unless it's something like a romantic drama, where it's very obvious up front that this is not going to have a happy ending, readers will feel really betrayed if they get invested in your characters, and then at the end of the story, the characters don't end up together. It is the main expectation. In fact, it is such an expectation that the Romance Writers of America, which is an organization specifically for romance writers to gather and share industry news, one of their requirements to prove that you are a romance writer is you have to submit a published work to them, and it has to have a happy ending. If it doesn't, you're not a romance writer. Uh, It might be family drama or fiction, but it's not romance. Um, Other types of expectations can include things like the length of your story. For example, in fantasy, um, particularly epic fantasy, readers might have uh, expectations for a longer story length, like between 100 and 120,000 words. In the romance genre, 
It might be normal for readers to expect something like 50 to 70,000 words. So that's a big difference in terms of quantity and length of your story, and that also impacts the story arc. So if you're writing a 120,000-word romance novel, it may feel like there are points where that romance novel is dragging. And there may be readers who think, you know, I don't want to read a story that long. Most of the stories in this genre are much shorter than that. Alternately, if you write a 50,000-word fantasy novel, unless it's urban fantasy and it's very clearly communicated to your readers up front that this is going to be a shorter novel, people may feel betrayed because they're expecting something to be over twice that length. Or they may feel like your story didn't have adequate content, uh, you didn't give enough thought to the story, you didn't flush out the characters enough or give the conflict enough time to really unfold. They may think that your story is abbreviated and that you rushed through it, even if you didn't, even if you technically hit all of those plot beats um, from a technical perspective. If readers are expecting something to be longer, they may think that you've done it wrong. Perspective matters. Another thing that readers are going to have certain expectations around is ending. And this is very apparent, again, in that example we gave about romance novels. They have to have a happy ending. There are definitely other expectations around ending. Um... If you're writing a detective story, the readers probably expect you to finish a case in the story or a crime thriller. They probably expect to know who done it by the end. There's certainly expectations for endings in specific genres. And if you deviate from those expectations, your readers can feel dissatisfied or even betrayed and complain about it in terms of reviews and also can negatively impact your sales. Another thing that where readers might have expectations is around the characters themselves or also races and species of characters. If you're um, writing in fantasy, for example, um, particularly urban fantasy, maybe if you are in the, I don't know, paranormal um, subgenre of urban fantasy and you don't have any paranormal characters, readers are going to feel a little betrayed. If you're writing an epic fantasy, readers may be expecting you to have things like elves and dwarves and um, gnomes and whatever in your story. And if it's just a bunch of humans, they might feel bored. There's also a little bit of peril around race of characters. So if you are a white person and you're writing a black person or a Hispanic person, you have to be very sensitive about what you're writing. And it may be that readers who relate to that race feel like you have done an uh, inadequate job of portraying that race. Maybe they may think you're a racist, or you're writing caricatures, um, you're writing stereotypes. There are a lot of negative things that can be perceived around writing a race that you are not a part of. And this can be more of an issue in specific genres, so at least keep that in mind when you're thinking about whether you want to be commercially successful. However, if you're writing about a race other than your own and you do a really great job, um, you're very sensitive and you portray that race in a really believable way, that's probably fine. But it can be hard to know if you're getting that right or not, especially if you don't have beta readers who belong to that race. So race is a particularly thorny question for writers, and I don't have a good hard and fast rule for you just to be sensitive to it when you are writing anything other than your own race. And this really goes to reader expectation. If your readers identify with the race that the novel covers, they're going to have certain expectations about how a person of that race may behave. And if your expectation or if your writing doesn't match those expectations, readers can feel dissatisfied or betrayed and just feel unhappy about the story in general 
or they can have very specific complaints that could really damage your reputation and career. For example, perceive you as racist, and you don't want that. So just beware. Another thing, uh, readers' expectations can include the gender of your character. So it's gotten really popular, for example, in urban fantasy for the main character to be a female main character. Female badasses in urban fantasy are like a big thing right now. And if your character is a male character, the fact that it deviates from the reader's expectations in that genre may make it harder to market. You're really going to have to do some work around what your readers will expect in the genre and figure out what's going to make the most sense for your story. Another thing that matters that's genre-specific is the emotional content of your book and the tone and the pacing and the tension of your book. All of that is going to vary depending on the genre you're writing in. So in a romance, um, the content can be very formulaic. It's basically, will they end up together or not? And the question should be, or the answer should be, yes, they will end up together. And there may be some personal conflict that the characters are undergoing, but it shouldn't be anything like a psychological thriller. There shouldn't really be horror elements. All of those things would be out of place in a romance novel. Um, If, however, you're writing, you know, a crime thriller, you probably don't want the tone to be happy and light, and readers may feel like you are not taking it seriously if the tone doesn't match appropriately. Something like um, urban fantasy, there's a little bit more leeway in terms of tone and emotional content. Some writers write um, sort of witty, funny um, stories in that genre, whereas other writers may be more serious. So that should be communicated to your readers in your book description, what sort of tone they can expect and what the emotional content of the book is likely to be. But you should make sure that it matches up with the reader's expectations of that genre. So if you're not writing genre-specific fiction, then this is less of a concern. So if you're writing just fiction in general, or maybe women's fiction, you don't have to worry quite as much about hitting these plot beats and having the right um, emotional tone. But the flip side of that is general fiction can be more difficult to market. It can be harder to figure out who your target audience is, and it may not be as commercially successful. So you really need to think about how your um, genre fits in with your commercial success plan, like what your desire is, and what your long-term strategy is as a writer, how you're going to market it, and the potential audience that is going to read it. So another thing you can do to help make sure that your book is going to be commercially successful is to enlist beta readers, but make sure they're people who are familiar with and who are going to enjoy books in your genre. And this is going to seem a little bit obvious based on the conversation we just had, but I'll spell some of this out for you. So no matter how familiar you are with your genre and how much work you put into preparing your story from understanding the technical beats, nothing really compares with having readers in your genre read your book and provide feedback. And in part, this is because you know exactly what your character's motivations are when you write them. You may have a really good mental picture of how each scene unfolds, but that's because you're in your head. So you don't know what things you're missing or what sort of signals you're sending to your readers through the, the prose. So when your readers read your story, they're going to have their own mental picture of how each scene is unfolding. And there may be places where it really deviates a lot from what you've written or what you think you wrote, because maybe you leave out some key language or the language that you do use signals the wrong emotional tone to the readers Maybe your dialogue is too heavy or too flippant and the emotional tone that the characters are using just doesn't come across. Maybe your descriptions are poor, not particularly evocative, or maybe your descriptions are way too wordy. 
there are a lot of things that you think you get right, but readers may think are not consistent with what should be in the book based on the genre the book is. So beta readers are people who are there to help you figure out if your story needs to be tweaked. So the point we made way back at the beginning was be prepared to tweak your story. Beta readers are the people who are going to help you figure out what those tweaks ought to be. They should be people who are familiar with your genre, so they can com comment on how your book compares to the rest of the genre. And they should be people who will be honest with you about the story. And you may need to experiment when you're reaching out for beta readers. You may find different people have different levels of ability to be helpful to you. And there are definitely some things you can do to help them be more helpful to you. So over time, you're probably going to tweak your beta reader team. Some people use beta readers and advanced readers as sort of separate pools of people. And if you're doing that sort of separation, your beta readers are probably going to read your book earlier in the process, whereas your advanced readers are probably readers who are going to read the finished version of your book. And all you really want from those people is for them to read your book and leave reviews when you launch it. Whereas the beta readers who are going to read your book earlier in the process, you want them to provide feedback to you about how that book works in the genre and what sorts of things you can do to improve the story. So when you use a beta reader is entirely a personal decision. Some people prefer to use beta readers very early in the process, maybe even after a first draft or the first revision before they have enlisted an editor. Other people prefer to work with an editor first and then send the book to beta readers after it's had an initial editing pass. So whatever you want to do is fine. Just make sure your beta readers understand what they're getting. If this is a first draft of a book or something that has been through revisions a few times and make sure they want to sign on for that. Some beta readers might not want to read a first draft. They might want to be further along in the process after it's been edited while other people might be really helpful to help you figure out where you want to go during the editing process, so maybe those people should receive it earlier in your writing process. And there's really no way to know that until you've practiced, until you've had experience and used beta readers for different, um, at different points in your process. It's entirely a personal decision. So this is something you're just going to have to experiment with as you go through your career, and you're going to improve and find what works for you as you go further along. So the point I was making about the beta readers should be people who are familiar with your genre. That enables them to comment on how your book is, how your book holds up relative to other books in that genre. So a reader who regularly reads romance novels, if that person reads your crime thriller, for example, just as a favorite to you, their feedback may not be that helpful. Crime thrillers have different sort of expectations and tone and pacing than a romance novel, so that reader's input may only be generally helpful and maybe even detrimental if they have um, incompatible expectations to the genre. And the same thing goes, like if you have a crime thriller fan reading your romance story, you're probably not going to get particularly helpful feedback from that person about how it stands up to other books in the genre, which is really what you want to know about if you want your book to be commercially successful. So there are some tools that can give you the most helpful feedback from your beta readers, and there are certainly places online that can give you like lists of questions you can ask for your beta readers, or even um, worksheets you can send your beta readers. And again, this is entirely personal up to what you want to do, but the types of things that you're going to want to ask your beta readers about are things like, how was the opening scene? Did it catch your interest? Were you able to tell who the story was about? And do you think the manuscript began in the right place? The opening scene is critically important to whether or not your book becomes commercially successful. 
It's the thing that people are going to see when they look at the look inside on Amazon or they download a sample from iTunes. And it's also going to be the thing that makes them decide whether or not they want to keep reading your book if they buy it. So you really want your opening sequence to shine. And sometimes you may start the story in the wrong place, and it may not seem apparent to you. But when a beta reader comes in, they may say, oh, you know, this opening scene was interesting. But for me, the story really started um, on page 15. That would make a much better opening scene. So you can look at that and decide whether you want to like throw out the opening and start on page 15. Or maybe you want to move the pages that started before page 15 somewhere later in the story if they are actually really important. There are a lot of things you can do to sort of play around with that to make sure your book starts in the right place. But it's a great thing to pull your beta readers about. Another thing to ask them about was, is there a point at which you felt like the story started to lag or where you didn't feel as interested in reading the story? This is important because it can help you figure out pacing issues Maybe it can help you cut a scene that just doesn't need to be there. Uh, maybe it can help you tighten up a scene that really could just use a little polishing if it does need to be there. This is a really good way to start pruning things that are going to not contribute to the overall success of your book so that the final product is the best version of what it can be. Another thing you might ask beta readers is, were there any parts of the book that confused you or that made you feel frustrated and annoyed? And this can be really helpful because, as I said earlier, when you write the story, you know exactly what you intend to say. So it's really difficult to look at these things objectively, whereas a beta reader doesn't know what you were trying to communicate. So there may be scenes where they just found the explanation confusing, or maybe the dialogue just didn't make sense to them. Maybe it wasn't clear who was speaking some particular line, or what this argument was about. You need to give it more um, flesh and more background. This can really help you spot problem areas, which is fantastic. And if there's anything that made them feel frustrated or annoyed, that's something where you want to pay particular attention. Um, this could be something specific to this individual reader, or it could be some way in which your book deviated from the genre. If it's something specific to the reader, it doesn't matter so much. But if your book is deviating from the genre there, it's definitely something you want to address before you put it out into the wild. And it can help you to take these comments sort of um, as a whole, instead of focusing too much on what each individual beta reader says. So you're going to get different types of feedback from different beta readers. If only one person comments on something that they found frustrating or annoying and nobody else does, it might be something just specific to that person. But if you have three or four beta readers and they all say, this one scene was really frustrating to me, it's probably a good signal that you need to revisit that scene. Um, another thing you could ask them is, were the characters believable? Are there any characters that could be made more interesting or more likable? It's really important to have believable characters in your stories because readers will see through it if they're not. If they're really one-dimensional or if their actions just don't make sense to people, these are the things that make people annoyed and will make them rate your book poorly and also make them not read future books you put out. So you really want to address these things early on. The same thing goes for asking if there are any characters that could be made more interesting or more likable. We really want to have characters that feel like real people, so they should have some flaws in addition to being, you know, good at some things. And they're going to be more interesting if they have flaws, if they're not perfect. And um, in terms of making them likable, we touched on that in the first point. You really need to have characters that are sympathetic. You need to have characters that your people are going to relate to, your readers will relate to. And it's going to make them want to root for those characters and find out what happens to them. If your characters are not likable, not relatable, not sympathetic your readers are probably not going to want to keep reading your story. 
They're going to say, you know what? This guy is a jerk. I don't care what happens to him. I'm going to go read a book that I'll enjoy more. Another thing to ask your beta readers is, did the dialogue keep your interest and did it sound natural to you? Dialogue is an area where a lot of writers have trouble, particularly writers who are new to writing or early in their career. And this can be also a big issue if you're trying to write something that is like dialect. So if you're using words that are specific to a given region, especially if it's not your own region, it's really easy to get dialect horribly wrong. And dialect can also be very distracting to your readers. Um, same thing goes if the, di- the readers are not a part of the region where the dialect is from. If it's not self-apparent to them what things mean, they might find it confusing when uh, characters use certain words that are regional specific. And trying to write an accent can go horribly wrong because it can be very distracting and readers may just get frustrated by it. Or you could do a poor job of trying to write an accent if you're not familiar with it, or it could come across as stereotypical. Um, There's a lot of things that can go wrong about trying to write an an accent. So it's definitely good to find out how the beta readers feel about your dialogue. Uh, Another thing to ask them is, do you feel like there's too much description or exposition? or not enough description or exposition, and ask them to point to specific scenes where they feel like this is an issue. This can tell you whether you need to tone back some of your descriptive writing, or whether you need to go in and flesh out some areas more, just to give readers a good feel for what's going on. And this is something that's tricky for a lot of writers to get. Was the ending satisfying, and was it believable? A lot of people have problems with endings. I personally used to hate endings. It's something where you really have to hit the right note in order to make your readers happy. So definitely check with your beta readers about how they felt about the ending. If they feel like it wasn't believable or if it wasn't satisfying, then you need to change that. The ending is the last thing people are going to read before they write a review of your book or decide whether to buy the next book. So you really want to hit that on a high note and make sure that's one of the best parts of your story. And finally, you might ask them things like, um, did the writing feel consistent with the genre? Why or why not? And this is where it really matters, again, to have readers, beta readers, who are very familiar with your genre. So, for example, if you write a crime thriller that has a really lighthearted tone, that's probably not going to be consistent with the genre. Alternately, if you're trying to write a romance, and it's got some sort of really dark stuff going on in it, it's not consistent with the genre, and readers may be turned off by that. So ask your beta readers, how does this feel relative to the genre? And really take that uh, feedback into consideration when you're thinking about what sort of tweaks you need to make to it. And when you're looking at your feedback as a whole, if any one of these things is off a little bit, you might be okay. Like if um, the opening scene wasn't quite where it should be, but otherwise it was a good story, you may be okay. Although that's really an area where you don't want to get to... uh, complacent because if people don't care about your opening scene, they may not read further into your novel. If there's a few places where your story started to lag, but it wasn't a problem overall, your pacing was good overall, and the rest of your story was good, then it might not be such an issue to have those lagging points, although really you'd like to iron those out. But the point I'm making is if one of these things is not quite where it should be, you're probably still okay. You might lose a little bit of impact but overall, it's probably still a decent story. If you have a bunch of these things starting to pile up, though, it can signal a major disaster to your story, and overall, it's likely to mean that your book is not going to be a commercial success. So if you get a lot of feedback that a lot of these things are off, then you probably have some fundamental problems with your story that you need to address on a bigger level 
before you go back to another round of beta readers or to an editor to really um, shape your story better and make sure it's something that's going to have more commercial appeal. And I'm going to make a point here now, and I'm not going to speak too much on this because it's something we've talked about before and we will talk about it again. Make sure you have an editor. An editor is essential to making sure that your book is commercially successful. Not here to have an argument with you about it. Not here to uh, convince you, just telling you. An editor can make a huge difference in whether or not your book is commercially successful. A developmental editor can help you figure out these same sorts of issues with your plot that you might be able to get feedback from beta readers about. And a line editor or a proofreader can help you find grammatical issues and spelling errors that might turn your readers off otherwise. Do not skimp. Hire an editor. Moving on. Now we're going to look at the second part of that equation about how to write a book that's going to sell commercially. And that is to look for a niche in the genre where you have the most potential. So first of all, that means you need to know what genre your book is. And for first-time writers, this can be kind of difficult. It may seem to you like you've written a romance novel, but if it doesn't have a happy ending, it's probably not really a romance novel. It might be, like I said, a family drama or maybe just general fiction. Alternately, you might think you wrote a crime thriller, but it may actually be more of a cozy mystery. Um, there are really a lot of distinctions in genres, especially when you get into the subgenre level. Uh, for example, urban fantasy. Is it um, mythology? Is it uh, paranormal? Does it have vampires and werewolves? Does it have gods and goddesses? These are sort of separate subgenres. So it's really important for you to figure out where exactly your book fits. This can be done in part by having a good list of comparable books, which we've talked about in some of the prior podcasts, to understand other books that are like your book, and go look at the categories that they are in on the Amazon page. This is also something that can be done using a tool I'm going to tell you more about. It's called Klytics. K-L-Y-T-I-C-S dot com. And this is a report that is compiled by people who sift through Amazon data and really put together a list of details about specific genres or subgenres. And we're going to get into more of that here. So one of the things you're going to do when you start looking at genres is ask yourself if there is a subcategory where your story could fit or does fit and start by identifying this. So for example, um, America's Favorite Couple that we've published here at Bright Little Light Press is contemporary romance. It's romance that takes place in the present day. It's contemporary. However, there are some subgenres in romance that are pretty successful. One of them is clean and wholesome. And clean and wholesome means there's no sex in the novel. America's Favorite Couple happens to be a clean and wholesome novel because it's told from the perspective of a video camera watching the action unfold in this reality TV show. So the fact that there's no sex in it means it fits into that clean and wholesome category. And that is actually an area that's really ripe for stories right now. According to Kalytics, there's a lot of opportunity in the area of clean and wholesome. Uh, early on, when we first published America's Favorite Couple, we didn't have it in this category. It was in the contemporary romance category. And there are a ton of books in contemporary romance. It's hundreds of thousands of books. And America's Favorite Couple, even on a good day, because it's an unknown author and we're starting from scratch helping this author to build an author platform, so the sales are sort of ramping up slowly on that. Um, even on a good day, the subcategory ranking of contemporary romance would be something like um, twenty to 30,000 in book rank, 
And that is not great from term in terms of Amazon's algorithms for helping you be discovered by other readers. It's not really going to come up high in search results, and you're going to have to spend more marketing dollars to rank well in that category. Or if you're competing with other people in that category, it's going to cost you more money per click to compete. Now, once we started looking at these subgenres where that book might fit, we found Clean and Wholesome. And in Clean and Wholesome, uh, America's Favorite Couple is starting to rank really well because there aren't a ton of books in that uh, niche. So we've ranked anywhere from 500 to 1500 in the Clean and Wholesome category. That is great because it really increases discoverability. Amazon is much more inclined to feature books that are ranking highly in their subgenres. And it also means that when advertising it, it costs less money per click to compete with other people who are in that category because there aren't as many of us. So we don't have to spend as much money trying to compete with them. Uh, another example of subcategory, a book that we're publishing later this year by our fantasy author, is a fantasy book. It is urban fantasy, but we've used Kalytics to drill further down and have identified that it's probably going to be in the category of mythology because it's based a lot on Irish mythological creatures. And so that really features heavily in the storytelling. And that's going to give um, readers a better idea of what they're getting when they go to look for this book. And that also means that's going to be what we're targeting when we start advertising and marketing this book. So knowing the subcategory where it fits is really helpful. And the next thing you can ask yourself is, is your subcategory a lucrative one? Are there a ton of books that are published in that subcategory? And how does it look relative to demand? So if your subcategory is very saturated, you're going to have a hard time standing out. That can mean that you have to spend more marketing dollars to make each sale. And it also means you're going to potentially have less profit and potentially fewer sales. So to go back to the example I just gave you, in the contemporary romance category, America's Favorite Couple was not a standout. There are so many books in that category even on a good day, we were ranking pretty poorly. But when we switched to Clean and Wholesome as one of the subcategories, suddenly we're ranked much higher. Um, as a category, there aren't as many books, so it doesn't take as long to stand out. It doesn't take as many sales to stand out. And when you start getting highly ranked within a subcategory, Amazon's algorithms start helping you market your books. Uh, one thing you'd ask yourself if you're looking at subcategories, if there aren't already a ton of titles, is it something that people just aren't reading? Or are there just not many titles in the niche, but people want to read them? So if it's the latter, this type of niche can be a great opportunity. That means there are readers who want to read in this category, but because there aren't as many options for them, your book has a much higher possibility of being discovered and being recommended if other people want to read that type of subcategory. So ideally, you want to be in a niche where there is not as much competition and you don't have to spend as much money to market and there's a better chance of being discovered. Once you start drilling into this, if you find out that your main niche is just really oversaturated, or if the price for books in that niche are really low and you want to make more money, you can make changes to your story to fit into one of those subcategories. So for America's Favorite Couple, it already fit into the clean and wholesome category because there was no sex in it. But if I decided that I wanted it to fit in that category, we could work with an editor to remove those sex scenes and make it a clean and wholesome story. They probably didn't contribute substantially to the telling of the story, and by making that small change, we had a chance to get into a category where we could rank much higher and potentially make more sales at fewer, a lower cost. There may be other small changes like this that you can make to your manuscript that will help you fit into a subcategory and really 
drive sales and make it more profitable for you as a writer. For example, if you're um, writing a fantasy novel and your fantasy novel has vampires in it, maybe if you switch those vampires to fairies and go from paranormal to mythology, the category would be a lot uh, less populated and you'd have a higher chance of making an impact. I don't actually know, I haven't looked at the data around this, but it's just an example of the type of change you can make that doesn't substantially affect your story, probably. Maybe you'd have to do a little bit of tweaking around the vampires only being out at night thing and what the vampires are vulnerable to, but the storytelling itself may not be related to this particular element. So changing it may not substantially change the story, but could substantially change how your story ranks within the category. Another way in which this matters is when you are looking at your also bots. So on Amazon, if you scroll down below the book description, there's a list of um, books that spans the width of the page that says, readers who looked at this book also bought this book. And these are books that fans of your book are likely to also enjoy. So you can use also bots to sell your book. You can target those when you're marketing your book. You can use also bots if you're trying to find reviewers to get them to review your book. If you have a book that ranks really highly in your category, you may be likely to show closer to the beginning of the also bots. It's not entirely clear how Amazon's algorithms work, so we don't really know if it's because of your book's overall ranking in the category, or if it's because the number of people who bought your book who went on to buy this other book that determines where your book shows up in the list of also bots. But anything that can get you more notice organically from Amazon could potentially improve things like where you show up in the also bots list or how other people discover your book. It's a good thing, period. And finally, if your book starts showing up in a lot of other also bots, that means that's way more places where people might have an opportunity to encounter your book. So um, right now, America's Favorite Couple has like 20 pages of also bots, which means all of the titles that are on those pages, America's Favorite Couple is an also bot for. So I think there's something like maybe five to seven books on a page. I'd have to look at the Amazon page. But if that's five times 20, that means that's 100 other books where Amazon um, is showing America's Favorite Couple as an also bot. So someone who's looking at those other 100 books will see America's Favorite Couple on that list there, potentially, and be like, oh, here's another book that's similar to this book I'm looking at. Maybe I should buy that one too. It's really helpful when it comes to marketing your book and getting more sales. So I'm going to talk specifically a little bit about that tool I mentioned above, klytics.com. It's k-lytics, L-Y-T-I-C-S dot com. And I'm going to post a link to it in the show notes. And what klytics does is they take a lot of the data from Amazon and also some external sources like search data, and they plot for you um, how certain books in certain subgenres are performing. They provide different types of information in the different reports relative to the genre, but the report probably includes things like a strategy map that can tell you about hot sells, hot niches, um, hot mainstream, and competitive bestsellers. So ideally, you would like to be off the beaten track, and if your book fits into one of the good opportunity areas, or if you could do a few tweaks to make it fit into one of those good opportunity areas there could be a lot more opportunity for you. So if it's something that you're going to compete with a lot of competitive mainstream books, you're going to have a harder time selling it. You're going to have to spend more marketing dollars to make your book known. And you're going to have to be really competitive in terms of blurb and cover and all of that stuff that goes into it. 
if you find one of these hot niches where there's a lot of interest in one of these areas, but not a lot of competition, then you have a little more leeway in terms of cover and blurb, and you can also be discovered with fewer marketing dollars, which means more profit to you in the end. So you really want to be in one of those hot cells or hot niches. And if you can do a few small changes to your book to get you into one of those, it is definitely worthwhile. Uh, this book also will tell you specific information about the subgenre. And so, for example, um, the fantasy report we have bought because of um, the urban fantasy that we're putting out later this year. And so one of the slides in this um, Kalytics report is a definition of urban fantasy. And it tells you what urban fantasy contains, what it should have, um, the things that it will often have, so things that your book may contain, and then things that it should not have. So it can tell you if you're miscategorizing your book. And urban fantasy, for example, um, should have, according to this report, real-world elements, a modern-day reality, such as an urban setting, i.e. it involves a city and its people, hence urban. Um, it often also should have uh, imaginary elements, especially supernatural or paranormal. For example, vampires, demons, angels, shapeshifters, witches, wizards, psychics, etc. And that's sort of what gives it the fantasy part. Um, there's a list of other things that it will often have, which is things like it's often set in a contemporary time, it will often have a strong, intelligent female protagonist. It will often have a main story based on action, fantasy, mystery, thriller, or suspense. For example, good versus evil, or saving the world, or solving a mystery. And it may have a twist of romance, but not as the prime focus for the plot. Then it will also go on to tell you things that it can have. So these things occur less frequently, but they may also still be in an urban fantasy story. And this includes things like science fiction, um, such as cyberpunk or steampunk elements or some sort of dystopian story element. Uh, things like mythology, for example, as the root for the supernatural powers, like the gods. Um, horror elements, maybe. And for an urban fantasy, it often has a teen or young adult or a new adult and college readers as a prime target group. So that can tell you some ideas of where you can market your urban fantasy story. Things that it should not have, according to this report includes a story where romance is the core of the plot, because this report would identify that as a paranormal romance, which is really a different category, and that would have a different type of marketing and different sorts of um, rankings and content in your book. So if your book is called an urban fantasy, but it's actually a paranormal romance, you could be misleading readers, and readers may be unhappy when they start reading your book because it doesn't meet their expectations. Another thing it says it should not have is a setting in an entirely fictitious world. That would make it a high fantasy novel or an epic fantasy. So this author who's writing the urban fantasy actually has some high fantasy and epic fantasy novels, which we're going to be publishing probably next year or the year after. She sort of likes to dabble in all kinds of different fantasy-related things, but those are definitely different categories that need to be marketed differently. The book cover for them will be different. The book blurb will be different. They have a different target audience. So there's really um, distinctions between those different types of fantasy categories. And these are the types of things that the Kalytics Report can help you figure out so you can decide where it should fit in what category, and it can really give you a really great heads up in terms of where you're going to need to market it. Um, the Kalytics Report also goes into Google Trends in terms of search interest for urban fantasy and paranormal romance in the past 13 years. And this report has identified that the peak for that was in 2011. 
So as I was saying, demand for that has gone down slightly, but according to the slide, it's still at a higher rate than it was in April 2005, for example. So there's still some demand. But maybe we're past peak in this particular um, subcategory. So maybe we're going to focus more on marketing this author's other work if we find out that uh, high fantasy or epic fantasy is doing better in the fantasy genre. We'll have to see what those reports say. Um, however, urban fantasy is a high-performing mainstream market on Kindle. It offers high sales, but also a high degree of competition, according to the Kalytics report, again. And this has identified some hot sells and hot niches, as well as hot mainstream and competitive bestsellers. So this can tell you things like certain niches where you should try to get your book to fit, and the competitive bestsellers, there's actually, this book contains a list of those titles. It's something like the top 100 titles in that category. And those titles can really be helpful to you when you're trying to figure out how you want to market your book. You can look at what the other people's, those successful writers are doing for their blurbs, for their um, book covers. You can look at the categories and subcategories they're trying to fit into. And if you happen to see their ads on Facebook or on Amazon, you can look at their ad copy. And really, you can target those books as well when you're setting up your own marketing, uh, your own marketing rather. You're going to want to use those books, titles, and authors as um, keywords when you're doing your sponsored keyword advertising, or if you're doing product placement advertising, you want to place your book on those particular highly su successful books in your niche. Um, this can also tell you who you're going to want to target if you do Facebook advertising or advertising on other platforms. You really want to go after those people who are performing well in your niche. And all of this is in that Kalytics report. Um, the Kalytics report also has great information about the book length. So it will tell you the average number of pages in a book in that genre. Uh, I think, for example, in um, Urban Fantasy, it was around 300 pages. And it can also tell you the average pricing in your genre. So we actually found out that um, Bright Little Light Press was pricing its books higher than average, in the romance genre, America's Favorite Couple is actually priced higher than the average. And as an ongoing strategy, we're going to have to look at, well, the Kindle version, rather. As an ongoing strategy, we're going to have to look at whether or not we want to reduce the price of that Kindle book, or whether we want to keep pricing it at that higher rate just because we're a press, not a self-publisher, and some things um, related to perceived value and stuff we talked about on one of the prior podcasts about book pricing we're really going to have to look at whether or not we want to continue to be priced above average for the genre. And for you, if you're going to self-publish, um, knowing what the average price in your genre is, is a great place for you to start. Start by pricing yourself at the average price in the genre. And that can give you a good place to um, dive in if you're not sure about how to price. Yeah, um, there's also a lot more data contained in this report. It's a really dense report. And we here have gotten them for the urban fantasy novel and for the romance novel. And we'll probably be investing in these reports for the other um, stories we are going to be publishing later this year and into 2018, just because it's really helpful when identifying uh, marketing data and sort of putting together your overall strategy. And it can help us talk to our authors about how they should shape their stories in order to be more successful in the niches. For example, um, the next book in the reality TV romance series um, is scheduled to come out this summer, and one of the discussions we're having with the author around the final version of this book is whether or not that book should also fit into the clean and wholesome category. The author is telling that book from a different point of view, so it's not going to be from the camera's point of view, 
and therefore there's potential for sex scenes to be in the book. But the clean and wholesome category is a place where she could really stand out with uh, her whole series if her whole series stays clean and wholesome. And there's also the question of if we continue to market her first book as clean and wholesome, if the rest of the books in the series contain sex scenes, so readers who start out with the first book thinking it's clean and wholesome, but then go into the next books and they are not, that can be a betrayal of reader expectation. So these are the types of things we're talking about with the author as we try to decide how the final version of the book should turn out, whether those sex scenes should be there or not, and how we're going to market it going forward. And if you are going to go with a traditional publisher, these are the types of conversations you should expect to have, and you should ideally try to figure these things out before you start shopping your book around so that you can say to a traditional publisher, look, I looked at this, and this is really a good niche for it, this is a good fit, Um, this is what I've identified, so I'd like to go with this. A traditional publisher may not listen to you, they may have their own ideas about it, but if you're selling a first book particularly and the publisher doesn't know who you are, if you've done some of this legwork already and have told them, you know, I've done this marketing work and I've identified this and I have a strategy, that can help your book be perceived as a better risk for the publisher. So yeah, I've sort of covered a lot of information here. I think the final note that I really want to leave on is if you want to do writing as a career, you have to care at least somewhat how your book is going to sell commercially. If you want to do writing as a fun hobby and you don't care so much about whether or not you're making money from it, then by all means, don't bother with any of this commercial success stuff. But if it's something that you need to make money off of, if your goal is to eventually quit your day job or at least have a nice side income coming in from your author career, then you need to pay attention to these elements that are going to help you succeed commercially. Hopefully, I've given you a lot of good things to think about. And uh, again, I'm going to put the link to Kalytics in the show notes so that if you have already written a book, you can look at the Kalytics report and see where it fits in. Or if you're still writing a book, you can look at Kalytics reports in the category where you want to write your book and maybe shape it a specific way from the beginning. And then you won't have to do so much tweaking later on to make it fit the category where you want it to be. On that note, I think I'm going to leave you here. Thanks for listening, as always. And if you have any feedback or anything you'd like us to cover on a future episode, hit us up on Twitter at BLL Press, or on Facebook at BLL Press, or our website at brightlittlelight.press. Bye!